Welcome to Ag Vic Talk, keeping you up to date with information from Agriculture Victoria. Have a plan. It's perhaps the most common thing said about preparing for bushfires. How many, though, in fire zones actually have them? G'day, I'm Drew Radford, and having a plan was even more important to the people staying on Tom Silcock's property when a bushfire hit and he and his wife were away. Tom's experience, though, is more than just this one incident. Unfortunately, he's been burnt out twice and also confronted fires around his properties on half a dozen other occasions. To share what he's learned from these unenviable experiences, he joins us for this AgVic Talk podcast. Tom, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Tom, you've been in the farming game for a while. What do you farm? And where do you farm? Uh, so Western Victoria, and not far from Balmoral, at the foot of the Black Range Mountains, which is near the Grampians. And uh, we've run fine wool merinos all my life, and... Uh, have been involved in studs as well, breeding genetics for fine wool merinos and trialling. I've been heavily involved in a lot of trial work for merinos. Tom, you live in a beautiful part of the world, but unfortunately it comes with a cost. Bushfires are part of life and sadly many experience them, my family included. You, though, have had more than your fair share. We've had two properties seriously burnt out two years in a row and we've been confronted by fires on another half dozen occasions as well. So yeah, we've had plenty of experience with them and we live right at the foot of the mountains with about 25 kilometre bush frontage so that obviously makes us extremely vulnerable if there's bushfires in the vicinity. Tom, that is an unenviable track record that must be somewhat fatiguing to say the least <laughs> somebody said to us after we had our home property was burnt out in the first year in 2005 somebody said to us well that's it you won't need to have fire insurance again and then uh, lo and behold we had you know, our second property burn out the following year so yeah the argument for insurance certainly doesn't stack up in that case certainly not but it must be fatiguing though i always laugh about the fact that uh I didn't look in a mirror, I reckon, for two years. I was too busy. And then when I did, and all of a sudden I realised I had grey hair. Uh, and I think there's a fair bit of truth in that, the stress and the pressure of coping and uh, rebuilding, especially, you know, two fires in a row. I wouldn't wish it, one of them, on my worst enemy. But, uh, yeah, certainly very challenging, but also very uplifting because of all the help we receive from so many people, from such a wide variety of people, it's a funny mix of being totally confronted with despair and and heartache and all the sort of angst of dealing with being burnt out and then at the same time being overwhelmed with just so much goodwill and support. It's a real mix of two extremes in life in rural Victoria. These experiences you share with other people, so hopefully they can learn from them. So let's start with the initial 24 hours after a fire, that first one. What was going through your mind? And now in hindsight, what would you change or do differently in those 24 hours after a fire? I was just so fortunate to have some really great mates that rocked up in the hours after the initial fire uh, had gone through our property and uh, spent ranging from one to two days with me and in the first instance that first night 
we just drove around for hours deciding and planning what needed to happen and the priorities. So that was absolutely critical to keeping me focused on making decisions on and making sure the decisions were well focused. And a good example of that, as we drove around, one of the guys in the ute said, oh, we need to do something about some of these poor animals. You know, we need to start, go and get a gun and start shooting them. But it didn't take long for the reality amongst the four of us to realise that, no, that was a waste of time because the job was just too big for us to cope with. We needed to plan on how to get it done efficiently and in the most humane manner possible. So that's a good example of the sort of directing one's focus and the decision-making. And, you know, on the back of that, we had a, a good friend and vet organised to be on property by 6.30 the next morning. I mustered the first mob of sheep in to be processed, all those that could walk, and that was the only mob of sheep I mustered. And I was so fortunate I didn't have to shoot any of my own sheep and I didn't have to pit any of my own sheep. That was all organised by other people so that it removed uh, the extra heartache from processing and dealing with it. That's a powerful example on a number of levels, not least because you've spent years, I'd imagine, building that flock up. Yeah, I've shot plenty of sheep in my life, although it's not a pleasant job, but I'm willing to certainly step in and help shoot other sheep for other people, you know, especially in situations like this, because of just knowing how important it is that you shelter and shield them from having to confront destruction of their own stock. And the other, you know, important thing that one of my good mates looked at me in the eye and got eye contact with me and said, you know, you're listening to me. And he said, it's hard, but you're going to have to learn to say thank you and accept help. And that is another real challenge for most rural people because, you know, we're used to looking after ourselves and getting on with it and coping the best way we can. But in disastrous situations like this, you just need all the help you can get and you just have to be humble and say thank you and accept it and it's very uplifting to receive it. Tom, how important is it to have a plan in the case of a fire and and how did it help you in that situation or in the other fires perhaps? If I could leave one message for the population of Australia, the rural population of Australia that are confronted with fires from time to time, it would be write a plan and stick it up on the fridge. And I can tell you that 95% of the people won't do it. They'll think they should, but they never do it. And we were so fortunate in the first instance, in the first year we were away when the fire started and we had some people living on the property looking after riding for disabled horses who were having a holiday at our place. And so they they were house sitting and that probably helped to make sure we had a plan for them and a manager on the property. And all of them, I think, were helped with the angst and the challenge of the priorities by having a plan and being able to follow it. And it was only probably once they'd completed the plan that really the stress and the pressure probably built on them more because suddenly then what do we do? Up to that point, they had a clear strategy to follow and it set the survival of our infrastructure and house and sheds and the horses and our dogs, you know, they benefited and survived because of all of that. That's a fantastic example because the plan ultimately benefited you, but who would have thought it was actually going to be picked up by other people on the property at the time? And I'm assuming what you're saying in the middle of all that time is there's so much chaos and fear and smoke and everything else going on 
just clear instructions telling me what I need to do now as opposed to standing there and just being overawed by it. Nobody knows how individuals will cope with and deal with stress and the pressure of having a massive fire coming at you. You don't quite know when it's going to hit. You don't quite know know, the extent of it. And pressure and panic and all those things kick in pretty quickly on a lot of people. But if you've got that strategy that's thought out with clear space and in time without pressure, then it certainly is a massive help. And the other great thing that happened in a sense for my wife, Alison, and and myself was that we were travelling home to our property trying to beat the fire and get home before it hit our property. So in a sense, we were removed from the immediate exposure. We were talking our way through the priorities. We couldn't do anything ourselves other than talk to people on our property and consider options. And one of the you know the clearest memories I remember about uh, the conversation I had with our manager was whatever happens, just remember we have good insurance. The stock are all insured and make sure the house is a good refuge. Make sure you use the house as a refuge and don't get caught out moving stock. And that was probably far easier for me to say to someone else than if I had been there myself because (laughs) my personality would have probably just wanted to save that extra mob of sheep and uh, that may not have been such a good thing. But because I was removed from it, it was probably a good thing. An excellent illustration there in terms of having stock in the right place before a fire on a critical fire danger so again another decision that's taken away from you I guess or the temptation to do that yeah and look I just wish I knew what I know now before the fire and we probably would have saved a lot more stock you know there's a, a number of issues like short feed might carry a fire but you won't kill as many stock on short feed and like a paddock that's been cut for argument's sake uh, laneways are often very good at not burning especially if they've been reasonably well trafficked and often they've got ryegrass. So they might have ryegrass stems on them, but if they've been trafficked a fair bit, those stems aren't flammable at all, hardly. So, you know, some of those lessons are hard learnt, and in my case, a lot of them I didn't learn early enough, but they're lessons that you can certainly share with people now, knowing that you need fuel. But on the other case, our second fire in our second year, we lost a lot of merino lambs that were recently bare shorn. And I thought that they would have survived reasonably well because they were on short cut paddocks. But in actual fact, because they had no wool to protect them, they were severely burnt much more than I anticipated. I just didn't appreciate how much benefit a fleece of wool does in protecting an animal. Tom, what about in the days and weeks after the fire? What are some of the things that you found really helpful? Again, um, help. <laughs> Just accept help. But you know, a couple of real quick ones, I guess, is uh, remove yourself from your phones or whatever as much as you can. Like, obviously, you need to be available to answer people and whatever. But one of the great things happened in our case is our daughter came home and basically manned our phones and sorted through all the messages for me and my wife. So that at the end of the day we got some clear messages that we needed to deal with compared with you know the ones of good wishes and goodwill that we need to get the messages but we didn't need to respond to and the other really important thing I think is right from the outset we got a whiteboard going and so we kept writing all the issues and the priorities of them on a whiteboard again at the end of the day so that you know we were revisiting those 
And my experience has been that as soon as you've been burnt out, really you become a facilitator. You need to remove yourself from a lot of the the hands-on stuff because there's so much decision-making and facilitating needing to be done to make the right decisions. In regards to some of those decisions, Tom, I'd imagine documentation of what's going on, especially in terms of dealing with insurers, would be good. But this is also a bit of a planning opportunity. This is not just replacing. I imagine you're looking at things in a different lens. Yeah, and in an instance, in the first fire, it had just gone through our property probably 10 minutes or so before we arrived home. So we drove down the road, a single dead-end road, to our property behind the front. And as we did, uh, we had a new camera and I'd said to my wife, just keep taking photos, which she did. And we didn't stop taking photos for weeks. And those records are just so incredibly important, whether it's for insurance or even your memory bank of how things were or how they looked. But insurance in particular is critical to have a record of what was before you lost it or what it looked like before you tidied it up. So I can't stress enough that you'll never take enough photos. You can always you know, bin them, but you can't take them afterwards. So it's really important getting those photos and planning and somebody else said to me whatever you do think about something before you put it back and in that first instance you know you're confronted with all the stress of it and everything ideally you just click your fingers and have it all back the way it was but you're forced into a situation that also forces an opportunity that a lot of people don't take well enough. It's an opportunity for you to reconsider, is the laneway really where you want it? Is that gateway really where you want it? And all of the decisions before you rebuild, make sure you can't do it better because you've been given a clean piece of paper and an opportunity to do it differently than the way you've had it all your life. Tom, beyond sharing your story with us on this podcast, I understand you're very generous taking the opportunity wherever you can to share your insights and what you've learnt with other people. Why are you so passionate about sharing the knowledge and the experience that you've had? I guess that stems firstly because I've got knowledge that I didn't have. You know, I might have done things differently if I'd had it early, but also some of that knowledge has been gifted to me from others that have been so generous with their time. And like, there's a lot of people probably helped us on our property that we don't even know who they were, uh, who their names are. And they probably did lots of things that we benefited from, but you know, we don't know who were the, the goodwill people were. And my opportunity and our opportunity is to, you know, the wheel turns a full circle. And so if we can help others, all we are doing is repaying some of the gifts that we've been given of goodwill in our challenging times. Tom, lastly, those listening to this, what would your one final message to them be in regards to bushfire? Plan, insurance, like an insurance one is cost of working insurance is such an underrated one. We underrated it and we upped it the second year and we still used it all up because that's what gives you the ability to clean up your mess, provide additional feed, adjustment, all those things that, you know, you think about insuring a building for argument's sake, but you've got to clean the building up, the building side up before you can build a new one. So that's something to be 
are certainly to consider. People will never be able to get enough help probably, so be willing. And one of the other ones is assessment. If you have insurance, you need your assessor there sooner than later because we saw neighbours that couldn't take full benefit of working bees because they didn't know what funds they had available to rebuild fencing and that because their insurance hadn't been processed. So I think you know that's something that's really important to be in a good position to maximise the support of the community when they are willing to offer help. You need to be able to capitalise on that. And I think checking your neighbours, you know, your family. We took only a week off, but a week off six months after we were burnt out, so critical just to sort of take a deep breath and step back because people's personal life is often overlooked from the stress and the pressure of just trying to deal with what's in front of them. Well, Tom, it sounds like you've done a remarkable job of dealing with that stress and pressure. I'm sure it's taken its toll. And thank you also for being so willing to share your experiences and really the hope that others don't have to go through quite the same experiences as well. Tom Silcock, thank you for taking the time and joining us for this AgVic Talk podcast. Thanks, Drew. Thank you for listening to AgVic Talk. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria, authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.